So I don't know uh, if any of you came out for the first time tonight, and I uh, just want to introduce myself. I'm David Burke here, the director, and I uh, just wanted to let you know who's talking to you. Um, two weeks ago, a woman named Angela Cummings came onto the UTC campus and uh, began to talk, and some of you may have witnessed it firsthand. Uh, last night I spent a little over an hour watching all of the videos that she has put on her YouTube channel about her time here at, at uh, UTC. And I watched her say things, share her life story, a broken woman uh, addicted to alcohol and drugs, prostituted herself to buy drugs uh, from this city, and um, she said some things that I don't agree with. Um, She talked about that she hadn't sinned in a number of days, and that if you continue to sin, that the power of God cannot be in you. The way she said things caused a lot of people to be very angry. If you were there, you may have seen her one day. She put out a chair and called it the judgment seat, said that people needed a Bible spanking. And um, as the days progressed, and I watched the videos and I talked to some people that were there, the crowds got bigger and bigger. And people got angrier and angrier. I remember seeing one of the videos where I think it must have been Halloween because she said something about Halloween being Satan's holiday. And somebody began a cheer in the crowd saying, Satan, Satan, Satan. And you could hear the crowd join in. I saw people with their Bibles open, but yelling and arguing with her about what she was saying and interpretation of words and verses and chapters and all of that. It seemed that for every verse that was thrown her way, she threw another one right back or ignored the the argument completely. You know, we get angry when someone misrepresents what we believe. And so, on, on the one hand, uh, I can understand those, those people that I saw on these YouTube videos that were so upset, followers of Jesus, yelling at this woman that she was dragging his name through dirt, misrepresenting who he was and is. You may not know that according to UTC administrators, she has signed up to come back to campus on Thursday and Friday. If you walked by Heritage Circle today, there was another man there with a sign with half of a scripture on it that says from Jesus, John chapter 7 and 8, go and sin no more, forgetting the first part where he says to the woman, neither do I condemn you. It seems... That word has gotten out among a group of people 
that this campus needs the gospel, their version of it. And what's interesting to me is, as I've been on this campus for 15 years, and many of you know that a good chunk of our staff comes from Seattle, Washington, which is a very unchurched part of the country, that we find it interesting that God has called all of us to the quote-unquote Bible Belt. And when I tell some of my friends that still live there, you know, what it's like to do ministry here, as, as I often remark to them, you know, it's, it's interesting for me because it seems that most students would identify themselves as being a Christian, a follower of Jesus. In fact, you may, if you were out on Heritage Circle one day and there was a gentleman that asked, trying to prove a point that she was not reaching people, how many people would call yourselves Christian? And I saw as the camera panned that so many hands went up. Ask Thomas or Kirsten or Jason or me that if you did that at the University of Washington in Seattle, you would see very few hands go up even if someone identified themselves as a Christian. It's a much different environment. Now, I'm not saying one is good and one is bad, but I have found that I often say to people that I feel like we're in an environment where people say, yes, I'm a Christian. And one of the things that we hope for here at the house, our mission statement is to bring people to a deeper knowledge and love of Jesus. Basically, if I can put it in my own words, we're trying to show people that Jesus is real and that he matters. And he's not just a one day a week activity. He is supposed to transform our lives. So, this semester, we've been looking at these typical Sunday school stories. And Zach, if we can put up the picture of my artwork of... You know, even if you've never been around church, you may... It's not a great whale, I admit. But even those outside the church know this story. Jonah and the whale. And the reason why I had chosen this passage even before Miss Cummings came on this campus. Because it's one of those stories that is, honestly, it's parts of it that are difficult to believe. I've shared my story of coming to faith, and many of you know that, that I was an atheist for the first 16 years of my life. I don't know what I was when I was a baby in one and two, but it, you know, the point is, is that I was raised in a home that absolutely did not believe in God. And stories like this made no sense to me. Because the story, the part that often gets told is that a man gets swallowed by a fish, some sort of big fish, a whale. It's got to be a whale, right? That's the biggest fish. Lives in there for three days? Then gets vomited up on land? Are you kidding me? But what's sad about stories like Jonah and some of the other ones that we've looked at, Jason, our associate director, two weeks ago, He's not here tonight. He's celebrating the fact that he just brought home his third child, Audrey Grace, from the hospital today. 
Remember when, jo- when Jason talked about knowing the ark, that how, how many people get bent out of shape about the size of the ark? Could you fit all the animals? One commentary I, I read is that the point of these stories isn't to do arithmetic. The point of these stories is to gaze in wonder and awe at the story of God. You see, Jonah, the book of Jonah is not about the fish. It's not about him getting vomited on the beach. It's about God. 39 times in 44 verses, God's name is mentioned. That's some arithmetic that you can rest on. The story's about God. And the reason why this is relevant to Miss Cummings being on campus is that the story of Jonah It's a story about a man who was called to go preach to a very wicked city. And I'm sure that Miss Cummings thinks, after her experience on this campus, that this is a very wicked place. I would beg to differ with her after being here for 15 years. But I will admit that there are some things that we hear about on this staff that would make you weep. There is sickness depravity, evil, sin in this place. And some of us might like to not think about it, but some of the things that we hear about on our staff make us sad, angry, recognize the depth of the brokenness, not just on this campus, but in the world. So the book of Jonah is written about 800 years before Jesus walked on the earth. And Jonah was an Israelite. People of, he was a, of the family of God, the people of God. He was a Jew. And he was told by God to go and preach to this city called Nineveh. Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian Empire It would be as if a Jew who had lost their family in Nazi Germany was told to go and preach to Germany after the war. That is what Jonah was told to do. Jonah won't have any of that commission from God, and so he gets on a ship, and he goes the opposite direction from Nineveh to a place called Tarshish, which is, many think is in Spain. Nineveh is in modern-day Iraq. And as he's going on the ship, he pays this fare. This horrible storm comes up. Jonah is asleep in the bottom of the boat. And the sailors start to cry out to all of their gods. And they're trying to figure out in their understanding of the forces of nature and gods and religion Who's responsible on the ship for this calamity? That's the way that they thought. Somebody has to be responsible for this. And they cast lots, basically like throwing dice to figure out whose problem it is. And the the lot falls to Jonah. And the captain says, who are you? Jonah tells him that he's a Hebrew. He's he's a a Jew. uh, He worships the God of heaven and earth. And he's fleeing from him. 
And the captain says, what is, what is this that you have done? And Jonah then says, I'm paraphrasing, look, if you want the storm to go away, throw me into the sea. Now, I'm going to pause there for a second. That says something about what Jonah believes about God. God's anger will only be quelled if I sacrifice myself. Well, interestingly, the sailors won't do it. No, they row harder. They try harder. The storm intensifies. And finally, they pray. They pray. God, forgive us. For as we throw this man into the sea, do not hold us responsible for his innocent blood. They hurl him into the sea, and the storm stops. And if you read the book of Jonah, it then says that the sailors worship. They worship God. A fish comes, big fish, swallows Jonah, and it says that he stays in there for three days and three nights. Chapter 2 is all a prayer of Jonah. And I, tonight I just wanted to read a, a section of it because I want you to, to think for a moment what it would have been like. You ran away from God. You decide that you're not going to do what he said, and then the storm being thrown into the sea, swallowed by a fish, and you begin to pray. Zach, we put up the section from chapter 2. And he says, when my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them, but I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good, and I will say salvation comes from the Lord. This prayer, if you go and read it in Jonah 2, the whole thing is a prayer. When I did not know God and I first opened a Bible, it was prayers like this that got my attention. A man who was so suffering in a place of depth, of sadness and grief, because at 16 years old, I was asking the question about whether or not life was worth living. And when a Gideon, the guys that also come on campus and sometimes get mocked, handed me a Bible outside my seventh grade uh, middle school, and I began to read that four years later as a junior in high school, I was amazed that the Bible actually spoke about life, experience, real things, of pain and suffering. God, where are you? And prayers like Jonah's caught my attention because how could somebody still hold on to hope in the midst of such pain and judgment? Well, Jonah chapter 2 ends with the fact that, as my beautiful artwork shows, Jonah is spit out onto a beach. He makes his way to Nineveh. Chapter 3, you, you, you hear that Nineveh is this massive city. 
described as it, it takes a three days to walk the entire metropolitan area. And about a day in, this is what Jonah says. In 40 days, Nineveh will be overthrown. That's it. That's all he says. Nineveh will be overthrown. I want to say something about this word overthrown. It's really interesting. It literally means it will turn on itself. It will turn around. That, by the way, is the same exact thing that Jesus said when he announced his ministry in the New Testament. He said the word that Angela Cummings said on this campus, repent. It literally means to change your mind, to turn around. We hate that word, don't we? I saw when Angela Cummings used it that people were absolutely irate because what does it mean? To say to somebody to repent means that the way that you're going is not good. None of us like to be told that, right? Part of it is that none of us believe that somebody else has the authority to say that to us. That, I think, was the essence of why so many people were angry at Miss Cummings. Who gave you the authority to say these things? Who gave you the authority to tell me that the path that I'm walking on is leading to death? This is what's fascinating. And when you read the book of Jonah, though, he says these five words. And it says that the whole city began to change. They began to fast. They began to mourn. They began to change their ways. By the way, Nineveh finds its way into other books of the Bible. In the book of Nahum, another prophet, it said that everybody, everybody had heard of Nineveh and were victims of their bloody ways. This was an evil, evil place. I don't know how many of you have ever seen the Veggie Tales version of this one. In it, evil is portrayed as a bunch of people slapping each other with fish. The Nineveh of the Bible, no one's getting slapped with fish. The whole world knows about this place. And so it boggles my mind that Jonah's little sermon, 40 days, Nineveh, overthrown, and everybody repents. From, from, it says from the, the youngest to the oldest, the richest to the poorest, the, the king himself begins to repent. And then it says that God decided to not overthrow Nineveh because of what he saw. Now, this is where it gets interesting. Jonah chapter 4, we read about Jonah's reaction to this. It's unlike what we would expect. You see, Nineveh, as I mentioned earlier, was the enemy. It was the place that, that Jonah probably felt like there's, there's no point to doing this. No point to preaching this message. 
And it made me think how many of us might look at this campus and think that there are groups of people that would never, ever listen, never, ever change their ways. You know, I confess to you that because I remember very well what it was like to be preached to as an atheist and how much I hated it, that I am not an evangelist. I'm not. Any of you that come from a church tradition that kind of talks about leading someone else to Christ, sitting with someone and leading them through a prayer, I have never, ever, ever done that in my life. Not something I'm particularly proud of. Some of it, I think, has to do with the fact that I remember what it was like to be that, and, and I probably err on the side of hoping that people will come to something like this sometime and listen. But you know what I really believe? That it's you all that would have those conversations with people. I don't pretend for a moment that a sermon of mine will necessarily bring someone to faith in Jesus. I really don't. Maybe I should trust that a little bit more. But I've heard a lot of sermons in my life, and I'm sure you have too. And it wasn't that for me. It was someone, a young life leader, sitting down with me, one-on-one for weeks on end. And it was the word of God under my covers at night that brought me to a saving knowledge of who he is. But I digress. Jonah chapter 4, if we can put that up on the screen. Remember, God decides to spare Nineveh and all the people. And Jonah thinks that that's wrong. It says, this seemed very wrong and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord and he goes, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew, I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life for it is better for me to die than to live. Does this make any sense to any of you? Listen to what he's saying. He's angry that God is gracious and compassionate. I began to wonder about this. What would make someone be upset about God's grace? How many of us, how many of us, when we think about that group of people maybe on our campus, that we think would never, ever change, would never, ever respond to the message and the truth of the gospel. How would we react if all of a sudden they did and they began to change? Would we welcome them here? Would we rejoice that God is gracious like that? You see, this attitude is all over the scriptures. If you remember, a few weeks ago, we looked at the parable of the prodigal son. And that story includes somebody that 
that goes away and spends everything that the father has given him on prostitutes and drinking and all this stuff. And he comes back and the father throws him a party and rejoices. But there's the elder brother that thinks that that's wrong. And I wonder how many of us get angry at the idea that God would be so gracious and compassionate. Later, the story, chapter four goes on and Jonah goes outside the city and he sets up a little booth, a shelter for himself over the city to watch. And what's really ironic, this word for booth and shelter it's the same thing when, when you read in the Bible about how the Israelites used to celebrate the festival of the booths. It was a temporary shelter and it was supposed to help them remember the fact that God delivers people. And here's Jonah setting up one of those, kind of waiting and hoping that God will punish. Isn't that tremendously ironic? The booth that helps people remember that God delivers and he's waiting to see if he's going to punish. Anyway, God, Jonah 4 says that God raises up this plant to give Jonah shade. And Jonah's very happy about the plant. And the next day, it says that God appoints a worm to destroy that plant. And the plant withers and dies. Then there's a scorching east wind that comes and Jonah gets so hot, he's so miserable that he wants to die. And then listen to this next conversation in Jonah 4. God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said. I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. And the Lord said, you have been concerned about this plant. Though you did not tend it or make it grow, it sprang up overnight and died overnight. Should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left and also many animals? And the book ends right there. One of the strangest endings of a biblical book that there is. But I think it's meant to leave us there. Should God not be concerned with the people that he has created? The question is for all of us that, that proclaim to be his followers. What do we care about? How many of us get upset and angry expecting God to make our lives comfortable? And when he doesn't, we get angry about that. And God's saying, ah, I'm concerned about some other things. I'm concerned about hundreds of thousands of people that need to know that they are forgiven and loved, that I am gracious and compassionate and just. It's a challenge for us. Two weeks ago, When Jason talked about Noah and the ark, he said something that judgment and hope are always intertwined in the Bible, in God's heart. 
we cannot escape the fact that God is just. And that when we recognize the truth of God, there are some things in our life that can and should change. I don't believe that the way that Angela Cummings presented it is the way that I would. And I honestly pray that she would find another campus to proclaim that message in the next few days. But as I studied the scripture and I thought about her being here, that it made me realize that there are people all around us that are longing to be set free. They might not say that they need that, just in the same way that we think that we don't need it. But the message that again and again comes through the book of Jonah and several other books is that God is gracious, compassionate, abounding in love, forgiving sin. And we are the ones that get to proclaim that beautiful message through our own brokenness. I think in some ways that's where Miss Cummings went wrong. Is that she put herself up above her brokenness. Even though she shared it, she put herself up above that brokenness and cast down judgment from that higher place. Whereas I think that the beautiful opportunity that we have is that we can proclaim that God does forgive and is loving and is compassionate and is just and desires for us to live abundant lives. We proclaim that from a place of our own brokenness and lowness, not from a place of superiority up on a chair, but with those among us are dying to be freed from the pain that they're in. And if we would embrace our own, we would embrace our own pain. We would better be able to walk into other people's and believe that it's not how much we know or what we have to say or how we say it. We can simply say five words and somebody may be going, oh my goodness, I've been dying for somebody to tell me that there's hope. In God's amazing economy, God, Jonah preaches five words and a city turns around. So it's not how much we say. God cares about the cities, the nations, the world, and the people in them. And the question that just screams out from the book of Jonah is, do we care about what God cares about? Or are we too busy getting angry about who he is, what we think he should be, wanting him to make our lives comfortable like the plant that 
grew up over Jonah getting angry when that goes away. Do we love our neighbors? Jesus compared his ministry to one biblical character, and that was Jonah. He said, as Jonah was three days in the depths of the sea, so the Son of Man, so Jesus, would be three days in the depths of the earth. He was referring to the fact that when he died, because God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever would believe in him, whoever would believe in him, no matter what they have done, no matter what kind of Ninevite you think they are, whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. That after those three days, something amazing happened, which we will talk about next week. But God is gracious and compassionate, abounding in love. And Jesus, by referring to the person of Jonah, shows us that. My heart is that we would embrace this idea that we have a remarkable message to share. We have an absolutely life-changing message to share. And do we trust it? Do I trust it? I just want to share with you because I want to speak from a place of common that I haven't figured this out. Today, our staff went onto the campus and uh, handed out flyers for tonight. And I walked into the Ark, which is a place that I like to go play basketball, and I've known some of the guys that are there. And I stood there with our intern, Thomas, for about 10 minutes just watching the game, mustering up the courage to go hand a couple of flyers to a couple of guys that I've played basketball with for several years. Why? Do I fear that they'll go, oh yeah, whatever. I know. It's not easy. Eventually I did. They're not here tonight. So I understand how hard it is. Understand what it's like to think that you're going to be rejected. But Jonah encourages me it doesn't take much. One of my professors used to say that God's only evangelism program for his whole, the whole world is a transformed life. It isn't necessarily a message, sermon, Bible study. Those things work. But your transformed life and mine, people notice. So, if Miss Cummings comes this week, 
Think about how you will react to that. Is it fruitful to yell and argue? I guarantee you if I were there, I would want to have talked to her (laughs) in a loud voice and start to show my biblical knowledge over against hers. But you know what? It wouldn't have done anything. We have a beautiful message to proclaim. And I believe that all of you would do it in a way that is so much more balanced, truthful, and gracious. But here's the sad part. That for the, depending on who you talk to, the two to 500 people that showed up on campus to hear her, that's the only gospel they've heard. Is that really the only message we want people to hear? Tonight, I know that I probably went long, I don't know, but um, afterwards, we're baking cookies, and I'm just going to sit down there and ask questions, or invite you all to ask questions, and maybe I'll ask questions about whether any of this made any sense. We could talk about what does it mean to live a transformed life on this campus? What does it mean to proclaim this message when we don't know how? We don't have the courage. But I do firmly believe that we have an incredible, beautiful message to share. And there are people that are waiting to hear it. Perhaps we need to hear it first, again. Let's pray. Father, um, I know I can be like Jonah, wanting to cling to my relationship with you, not trusting that you want me to proclaim it to anyone for fear of rejection or embarrassment so would you give me courage to obey if and when you do call would you give all of us that courage recognizing it is not how much we know or even the words that we would say but trusting that as Jesus told his disciples it will not be us speaking in that moment Would we trust that even in the midst of our brokenness, in our own struggle with sin, that you have saved us and you have redeemed us and you have given us hope? And as Jonah prayed from the belly of the fish, those who cling to worthless idols are forsaking your abundant love. Show us the idols in our own lives so that we might share with others the emptiness. And may we cling to your steadfast love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.